China, 1.3 billion people, an economy projected to become larger than ours in just a few years, and a rapidly growing military. How much trouble are we in? Former White House National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster and former White House Deputy Security Advisor Matt Pottinger on Uncommon Knowledge now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Herbert Raymond McMaster graduated from the United States Military Academy in 1984 and later earned a doctorate in American history from the University of North Carolina, where he wrote a thesis on the performance of the American military leadership during the Vietnam War that became a best-selling book, Dereliction of Duty. General McMaster served in the Army for more than three decades, including a year and a half as President Trump's National Security Advisor. In 2018, he retired from the Army with the rank of Lieutenant General, becoming a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Last year, General McMaster published Battlegrounds, the fight to defend the free world. After graduating from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst with a degree in Chinese studies, Matthew Pottinger first devoted himself to journalism, working for Reuters and the Wall Street Journal and spending some seven years reporting from China. In 2004, he joined the Marine Corps where he served as an intelligence officer in Iraq and Afghanistan. After leaving active duty, he worked for a time in finance on Wall Street. In 2017, he joined the Trump administration where he served on the staff of the National Security Council first as Asia director, serving under H.R. McMaster, then as deputy national security advisor. Matthew Pottinger is now also a fellow at the Hoover Institution. HR and Matt, welcome. It's great to be here. Great to be with two great friends. Thanks. Ah. Two quotations, gentlemen. Here's the first is from the late Hoover fellow, policy analyst, economist, Harry Rowan. I've been Hoover, at Hoover long enough to have known Harry. I don't think either of you met him, but this is Harry writing in 1996, quote, when will China become a democracy? The answer is around the year 2015. This prediction is based on China's steady and impressive economic growth, which in turn fits the pattern of the way in which freedom has grown in Asia and elsewhere in the world, close quote. That sounds almost risible now, but that was a serious point in 1996. Here's the second quotation. President Xi Jinping of China, and since he has eliminated term limits, we should call him perhaps President for life, Xi Jinping of China, quote, there are people who believe that communism is an unattainable hope, but facts have repeatedly told us that Marx and Engels' analysis is not outdated. Capitalism is bound to die out, close quote. For decades, I can remember it from the Reagan administration, for decades, it was American policy to encourage economic growth in China and to welcome that nation into the world trading system on Harry Rowan's theory that economic growth would lead to political freedom. Political freedom would make China our friend and ally and cooperator in a new, increasingly democratic world order. Economic growth has sent China in the other direction. We now see in some ways, because of the advent of technology, the most repressive regime the most repressive large uh, regime of a large country in all human history. What went wrong, HR? 
Well, I think you set it up perfectly, Peter. I mean, with, with the second quote from Xi Jinping, we underestimated, undervalued the degree to which ideology uh, played played a role in in how and how China would evolve over time. China didn't fulfill our hopes that that we had uh, that we had uh, placed on China, uh, and we clung to this assumption that China, having been welcomed into the international order. Uh, would play by the rules, and as it prospered, would liberalize its economy and liberalize its form of government. And and of course, that didn't happen. And by the time Matt and I worked together on the NSC staff, I think it was it was painfully obvious, right, that we had clung to these assumptions for too long. And and then we 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 took on this effort to to deliberately shift the assumptions on which our policy was based. And and there's there's nobody who's more responsible for accomplishing that than Matt Pottinger. So Matt, here's Here's what I want to, I'd like to sort of ask this question explicitly, and you're the right man of whom to ask it because you reported from China and then joined the Marine, you've been studying China since you were an undergraduate. Were we right? Was there an original trajectory in China that has since shifted toward democracy and now back toward some much more rigid form of ideology? Or were we just wrong all along? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, over the years have come to believe that we were actually wrong all along, but it's, it's useful to be uh, a little bit humble about, um, uh, 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 about uh, all of this. And to remember uh, back in 1996, when Rowan made that comment, by the way, I, I, I once had the chance to meet him uh, oh, you years did ago. Yeah, yeah, right. yep, just right. a little bit. And uh I would have agreed with him at the time uh, in 1996. I think that it was a, um, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, it, it was a bold and optimistic, but but still um, realistic seeming idea, especially after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of Soviet communism, uh, that, that inevitably uh, the same thing was going to happen in China one way or another. And, uh, and South and, Korea and, and Taiwan went well. South Korea and Taiwan went well, and but of course, I, I now heavily weight the fact that they were smaller countries that were American allies that that had security treaties and were were protected by the United States, uh, and that gave us enormous leverage um, to to push those countries in that direction. When when you really start to then read what the Chinese Communist Party has been saying in its own language to its own members all along, you start to realize that we we were deceived. We deceived ourselves. We, um, uh, uh, you know, really the, 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 the great um, contribution, if you will, to, to uh, Leninist government systems that China made was to camouflage their intentions. And uh, they studied very, very assiduously what went wrong that led to the collapse of the Communist Party in, in the Soviet Union. And they said, we just need to tack a little closer to the wind and, 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 and allow enough of these market forces to, to sort of uh, buffet our system, to, to raise standards of living, to make us wealthy and more powerful. But I now believe uh, that as a, as a Chinese businessman, who's a friend of mine, uh, told me, and he was someone who was uh, uh, always hopeful that China was going to continue right. on this liberal trajectory. He now believes that it was inevitable that they were going to tack back to uh, an increasingly authoritarian uh, uh, direction. Right. So one more, I, I want to come to details in particular, details of the relative correlation of forces. You two guys are both 
military professionals. And when I say how much trouble I'm, are we in, I really would like to know in some detail. But, but one more large, but really, I believe, important question first. And that is, what does China want now? What does China want now? The background in my mind is, in the old Cold War, there was a debate that never really ended among Americans. To what extent are they behaving like a great power? If the czar had never fallen, the czar would still want to expand because that was what the Russians did. They had their interests. They wanted to pursue them. And to what extent were they behaving out of ideology? By the way, our Hoover colleague, Stephen Kotkin, the historian, after I, I asked him once, after three decades of studying Soviet archives, what's the main finding? And he said, they were communists. <laughs> they really believed it. They were communists. So China... I mean, and you hear it in the air now, oh no, it's just Beijing. They're trying to reassert their authority as an Asian hegemon. They have the mandate of heaven. Their immediate neighbors must kowtow to them. They're trying to reassert the imperial system as against, no, no, no. They're communists in one way or another. They really do believe, it sounds like a crude phrase, but they really do believe in a the worldwide triumph of communism. Which is it, HR? How do you weight those two? Well, I'll, I'll debrief because we can hear from the real expert here, but uh, Matt. But you know, I, no pressure, I think, Matt. I think that we have to we have to we have to say that uh, you know that the party is obsessed with control, right? And I think this is really important to understand what explains the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party leadership. And I believe that they are driven mainly by fear. Fear of chaos, fear of losing the party's exclusive grip on power. And what that drives is a whole range of activities and behavior internally to stifle human freedom, to build the, the firewall higher and higher, to engage in, in genocide in Xinjiang, to mobilize people's social and family networks against them, to police the people's thoughts with this Orwellian so, police state. Have but I left also, out... I'm so, I'm just wondering if I have I left out a piece of history here that's important. So on the one hand, they don't want to surrender control because they saw the collapse of the Soviet Union. True as far as that goes. But they also witnessed, they all lived through the Cultural Revolution when even Mao lost control and students were rampaging through the streets and it was mob violence across this huge country. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of their own people. Yes, no? Well, uh, yes. And, and this is why the party's also really determined to manipulate history. Uh, because any kind of question about the party that arises from that from that utter disaster, if you know, first the Great Leap Forward, which was a Great Leap Backward, and right. then the Cultural Revolution, in which the party murdered its own citizens to ensure the party could stay in power, um, then you know th th that's skipped over now, right? What's what's the Orwellian phrase? You know, he who you controls the, the the present controls the past, and he who controls the past controls the future. And right. so the, what the party really wants to do is give a version of history that that highlights the party's great virtues and, and highlights the party as responsible for helping the Chinese people achieve this vision of national rejuvenation. So it's kind of fast forward from the century of humiliation to now China taking center stage in the world and China's aggressive behavior externally is also tied to this desire to maintain the party's exclusive grip right. on power internally, because it's really through this nationalist sentiment 
this 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 sense of pride that the party is deliberately generating uh, about getting over the century of humiliation and 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 uh, and taking center stage in the world. So, but I really want to hear what Matt's thoughts are yeah. about this. But I, I would say that the party is driven by a combination of fear and ambition, and 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 these an aspiration, right? And these emotions. Uh, are, are mutually reinforcing in terms of explaining the, the party's behavior internally, as well as its increasingly aggressive behavior uh, internationally. Matt, yeah, I, you, you, uh, I, I agree with uh, with HR, and I, and and you put your finger on it, Peter, by saying that you know they fear their own people. I think there should be no question that the thing that the Chinese Communist Party fears most is its own people, and you can see that in. Um, uh, even if you just look at their budgets, they spend more money on their internal mm-hmm. surveillance apparatus, their, their internal security, than they spend even on their military. And their military spends more than the rest of Asia combined, second only to the United States uh, worldwide. Um, it is what they fear most. And, and uh, the, the, the more tightly they tack toward the wind, the more they realize that they, they would eventually... Uh, lose control. And so that's why you've seen a re-centralization of power into the hands of, of the central government, into the hands of, of really of one man, um, uh, even on, on economics. I mean, the one thing that has, that has allowed China to succeed in ways that the Soviet Union never could was, was on the economic front because they were willing to get out of the way of their own people to some extent. Right. But now they're tacking back. They're saying, we, we can't afford to do that. If we continue on that track, we're going to lose our grip. So now we have to use heroic um, uh, measures. And, and I, I use that term ironically. I mean, it, it is, uh, um, I mean, my God, they, they've just crushed Hong Kong, which was the golden uh, that, goose. I was about to ask you, when Jimmy Lai appeared on this program, he said, in effect, this would be about a year ago now. He said, in effect, not quite a year ago, actually. He said, in effect, they can't afford to move against us. 60% of foreign capital is invested in China through Hong Kong because foreigners want the rule of law. They want to deal with Hong Kong banks. That Hong Kong is of economics, of such economic importance, we're okay. Our economic importance gives us cover to press for democracy. And Jimmy Lai has just been sentenced to jail. They crushed Hong Kong. And that's a straightforward calculation I'm asking you this. Beijing understood the economic importance of Hong Kong and said, no, control is even more important. Crush them. Something like that? Some sort of calculation like that? Absolutely. I, th- I think that in his heart of hearts, the, the Xi Jinping believed that he did have to crush Hong Kong in, in order to maintain party control. Right. And, um, uh, uh, and and so you have this this uh, what looks to be an, an extremely non pragmatic kind of uh, approach to the world, uh, in contrast to the way that Deng Xiaoping uh, uh, ran his affairs and his his immediate two successors ran ran their affairs. Uh, but it may it may be that uh, Xi Jinping does understand something that Joseph Stalin understood as well, which is that. It's not so much the content of the ideology, although I, t- I agree with, I love Stephen Kotkin's uh, uh, observation, you know, as, as he went deeper and deeper into the, yes. into the archive, he found that the more intimate the conversation among the, the top members of the Politburo, they still sound like communists. You know, right. it's, not a, right. it's not a joke. It's not just for, and so, they, so they're pickled in, in their own ideology. 
And even as the ideology starts to take on strange chimeric features, um, it, it is still ultimately that Leninist idea. It, it is about power and it is about right. the single party rule. It, and it is taking on chimeric aspects. I mean, the Chinese ideology today is not purely communist, even though it is it is very much a purely Leninist communist party. They're grafting on elements of nationalism, uh, old imperial ideas about a hierarchical uh, and, and also racial uh, supremacist sorts of overtones that are being introduced into the, into the ideology. But what will remain constant is the party uh, will at any cost, any cost, uh, maintain uh, its power. But right. do you, I would just say, Matt, I was just going to ask you, don't you think the or the argument that they're making for this, this you know, for socialism uh, with, with Chinese characteristics is more and more strained, right? I'm thinking of the recent speech that Xi Jinping gave on rule of law, which is really a speech about the opposite of rule of law, right? So you have you have now really these extreme uh, you know, examples of an Orwellian kind of reversal of the truth, right? And what I guess the question I would have is, is that play? How's that playing out inside of China? I mean, that's the question I, I always get asked, and I, I have no idea, right? I mean, how are the, are the Chinese people reacting to Xi Jinping thought? You know the, the the mandatory studies that you know the apps that that um, you know that that everyone you know, has to spend time on uh, so that their social credit score stays high and and they want to do well on the quizzes on Xi Jinping thought. I mean, uh, how how is you know, how are the Chinese people responding to this, Matt? And it is, do you think it's sustainable? Is it is this is this kind of you know strange perverted ideology? Uh, is it sustainable? I don't think it is sustainable, and I think that that the Communist Party knows that it's not sustainable. Uh, it, even Xi Jinping himself believes, and this is what makes this moment so dangerous. He believes that if he doesn't leverage all of the the amassed power um, uh, and advantages that they currently have uh, to to expand their reach and influence overseas. That eventually, all of the failings of their system, all of the all of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of a centrally planned system, are going to start expressing themselves uh, much more um, uh, blatantly. It, it, and so he knows that he's got he's got momentum before this this car starts to to uh, uh, to really lose speed, and 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 then eventually he's going to have to actually try to go uphill as well. And, and do, you know, defy physics and, 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 and help an economy that's essentially planned, uh, you know, uh, totalitarian dictatorship to, to escape the middle income trap. I mean, that, that's, that's, that would be quite a trick and quite a feat. So he wants to lock in as much uh, influence globally, in, including territorial. I mean, I mean, the fact that he's killing Indian soldiers uh, crushing Hong Kong, threatening to annex Taiwan. Taiwan has been the main source uh, for, the, the for, for much militia, of this the maritime militia. Yeah. You know, parking. You know, next to okay, the boys. You're, you're, gentlemen. You're, you're. If I may just offer to reassert control here for just yes, a moment. Yes, Speaking yes. of control, uh, <laughs> can I've been trying to read up a, a couple of documents for which uh, I know Matt is responsible, and I've been reading Pentagon documents. Listen. You military guys, who has what weapons, how much? This is really confusing, honestly. I've tried. And so I'd like to have the two of you take me through this briefly, but just take me through 
so to speak, the correlation of military forces. And I thought as a framework, I found this quotation from President Xi Jinping. This is a speech he gave in 2017 in which he established goals for the People's Liberation Army. To achieve mechanization by 2020, last year, to basically complete modernization by 2035, and to transform the PLA into a world-class, who translated this, I don't know, but these are the terms that the translator used, into a world-class force by 2049, which of course will mark the one century anniversary since Mao took control. So can we go through that briefly? Can the two of you provide a primer for the layman? Item one, what did he mean when he said that the PLA needed to achieve mechanization by 2020? What did he mean and did they do it? HR? Well, it was it's partially mechanization, which means you know, acknowledge the automotive, automotive revolution happened. And of course, the PLA, all the services are the People's Liberation Army and then People's Liberation Army, Navy, or Air Force, but the Army right. is the dominant culture, and and uh, and mechanization really also means improving the qualitative aspects of the Chinese Army, the PLA, by downsizing it. It actually got smaller, but it got more capable and was provided with much more advanced weapon systems, uh, including you know Chinese designed and manufactured tanks and personnel carriers and self-propelled artillery and and then also some very other important capabilities long-range missiles for example electronic warfare capabilities and uh and then and then also uh some advanced cyber offensive cyber capabilities counter space capabilities in the the PLA Air Force so by mechanization that's kind of shorthand for major qualitative improvements uh based on a very ambitious modernization program Peter, I mean, th this is the largest peacetime military buildup in history is what we're witnessing, I, I believe. And as a historian, I hate to make comments like that, like the most, but but they have increased their defense spending 800% since the mid-90s. And I was struck, if I understood this correctly, and again, I was at sea among statistics, but I was struck that after the downsizing, their arm, they, they have 2 million men, I think in their case it is, exclusively men or overwhelmingly men. They have 2 million men under arms. And as I recall, that's roughly the number we have under arms as well. Their their army is about the same size as who, Matt, do you look at their army and say, whoa, this could be a, this could be, if you establish the imaginary planes of Armageddon, put us up against them, is it an even match? Well, remember- How good are they? Are they as good, how, how on a scale of 10, where 10 is us, how good are they? Look, they, they, uh, I, I would not underestimate them, um, although they're not battle tested, um, but they're, they're training and, 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 you know, they're putting a huge emphasis on realistic combat training and, and that can compensate, uh, up to a point for a, a lack of actual combat experience. But the, uh, you have to remember what they've, they've been planning since they witnessed the first Gulf War, where where HR played a heroic uh, role, you know, in the last major tank battle of uh, of, of the 20th century, um, uh, they watched us and our capabilities using smart bombs uh, and uh, what, what the what the digital revolution had done for our ability to do precision targeting and and had advanced our ability to conduct maneuver warfare. Um, to to really uh, you know we, we were we were we were unmatched unrivaled 
And so they've studied very carefully how to try to offset the advantages that the United States has accumulated as the, as the best conventional military in the world. What we now have to do is, is help complicate their own offset with an offset of our own. And that means right. changing doctrine. It means I want to co- I'll come to that. And first, I, first, the little layman here needs a, a continuing education. I, I promise we'll come back to what we need to do. First, what we need, what we can do to them is the second question. The, my first question is, what could they do to us? And could I, could I? We spend here. Here's to me the the, the central conundrum, the piece of this that I, as a layman, have trouble understanding. We spend well over seven hundred billion dollars a year on defense. China, even now, after all this huge ramp up, China spends only about one third of that amount. And yet, according to the Congressional Research Service, one of the dozens of reports I found, the PLA has already achieved parity with or even exceeded the United States in several areas, including shipbuilding. Okay, look at a couple of charts, if you would, please, just two. Here's the first one. And that shows the Chinese military spending is in red. Ours is blue at the bottom. We continue to spend more than anybody else, but you can see the Chinese spending increasing over the last 30 years or so. And you can see that even though it has increased dramatically, it's still only about a third of what we spend. Here's the second chart, which comes from Nikkei. And this chart shows, suggests, even if it's only roughly accurate, even if the estimates are only roughly correct, that in Asia itself, we spread our spending across the world. They devote theirs to Asia. They've got us. They're, we're outnumbered in fighter jets, bombers, warships, hugely outnumbered in warships, submarines, hugely outnumbered in submarines, outnumbered three to one in aircraft carriers in Asia. So I think to myself, well, that's the old the old story. When you're on defense, you have to cover your entire perimeter but when you're the aggressor, you can concentrate your forces at places of your choosing. I So I, is that accurate that in Asia, they already dominate us in some important way? Or is that, it, listen, by the way, fellas, I didn't state this explicitly. Maybe we should have had a conversation before we, we started recording, but your job is to make me feel better. <laughs> well, you know, with all, we we don't want to feel good about this, right? We have to recognize that we were complacent for too long. Uh, you know, we had bought into not only the assumption we talked about at the outset that China was going to liberalize, right, and, and its form of governance, and and it, there'd be this great power condominium between us. Uh, it didn't happen, right? So uh, this was a period of time during which we were complacent. I and I would say this goes back, as Matt said, to the Gulf War. And, and what, what, what the Chinese Communist Party did, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army did, is they did studies very closely. And they didn't try to replicate our exquisite capabilities. They tried to figure out what, what capabilities can they develop to take our differential advantages apart. So we kept investing in fewer and fewer, more exquisite, more expensive systems. What China did is they developed countermeasures to those systems with counter-satellite capability, tiered and layered air defense, uh, long-range missile capabilities, electronic warfare capabilities, swarms of drones and, and undersea drone capabilities, and, and as you mentioned, a large number of much smaller attack submarines. All of this is meant to keep us out and to establish exclusionary areas of primacy. And why does that matter? 
it matters because that combined with what they're doing economically is meant to reestablish a tributary system and servile relationships with countries across the Indo-Pacific in a way that will make the world less free, less prosperous, and less safe. And so what we need to do, as Matt already mentioned, is counter that. Now, one of the reasons why our defense budget is so much higher than theirs is, first of all, they obscure a lot of their, oh, is that a so? lot of their defense investments. Uh, and so what you see in terms of the Chinese defense budget, that's not the full picture. And our budget is expensive in, in large measure because of personnel costs. Right. right. We're not buying as many fighters because we're paying people better and we have more civilian employees and so forth. So there needs to be there needs to be reform in all of these areas. And what I'm concerned about is if we keep on the same path of modernization we're on, we could be on a path to exquisite irrelevance because of the countermeasures that China's developing. We need to really rethink the types of weapon systems, the types of organizations we have in our military, because we are building a force that could be prone to catastrophic failure, when in fact we, we need forces and organizations that degrade gracefully, kind of like we are, Peter, at our age, you know, <laughs> rather than fail catastrophically. I'd like to say speak for yourself, HR, but I know I can't get away <laughs> with that. Matt, I just heard a Lieutenant General, career United States Army officer, graduate of West Point, say that we have been complacent. And this is serious. It has gotten serious. I want to come to Taiwan in just a moment. You raised Taiwan already. I want to get there. But is uh, your former boss correct about that? Yeah, I'm, I unfortunately he's spot on about that. Um, we uh, and and our allies have been uh, too complacent uh, as we've watched some of those metrics, like that that chart showing Chinese. Uh, spending increasing so dramatically, the fact that much of their budget is hidden, the fact that they don't have to do as much research and development as we have to do because they steal the they fruits steal of our it. research and development, right? So, so um, I, I don't take any comfort from from the nominal figure that that their defense spending is you know only a third of ours. I I, I don't think uh, I don't think that's true. Um, the uh, you know. The, the, the ways that we need to be countering them have to also incorporate in our strategy uh, elements of national power that are non-military. Right, and right. we still maintain a massive uh, advantage in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, our capital markets. Um, we still have a, a much better innovation base than China has. Uh, I think that if China were fully cut off from American innovation, it, it, it would die on the vine quickly. Uh, and uh, we can talk more about that. But I, like, I, can... I, I want to come to that. Uh, I certainly want to come to that. You can't sit here in Silicon Valley, as HR and I do, and as we're hoping you come join us at least from time to time. You can't sit here over the years and fail to see all the Chinese investments in tech. And it's unnerving at a minimum. All right. Taiwan. The population about 24 million, a high-tech hub, the world's leading manufacturer. This is important. The world's leading manufacturer of microchips and other items essential to high-tech. Incidentally, it's not just as, it's not as if we do all the design and flip it over to them for manufacturing. They're right at the cutting edge of R&D in all kinds of sub-categories uh, in tech. 
Mao triumphs on the mainland in 1949, and the defeated forces under Chiang Kai-shek go to Taiwan, which has since become unambiguously, straightforwardly, and successfully a functioning democracy. As a result of the opening to China under President Nixon, the United States ends its formal recognition of Taiwan, but we have remained, remained committed to its defense ever since, supplying the country with a constant supply of weaponry. There's the background. Now listen to this exchange, which took place when Admiral John Aquilino, you guys know him, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. Did I get that name correct? Mm -hmm. John Aquilino. John Aquilino is the commander of the United States Pacific Fleet. And he testified last month before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Tom Cotton questioned, would Beijing desire to have Taiwan annexed to the mainland? Admiral John Aquilino, answer, they view that as their number one priority. Um, well, gentlemen, we made our commitments to Taiwan, which is just across a narrow strait from mainland China, we made our commitments to Taiwan when China was dirt poor, feeding their people was a problem, and the People's Liberation Army was a peasant army. Things are different today. Are we overextended? Can we keep our commitments to Taiwan? Speaking of things getting serious, those questions are serious. Matt? Yeah. The, the, the truth is that Dominating Taiwan, as, as Beijing hopes to do, is a much taller order than, um, than I fear Beijing <laughs> thinks. Um, I, I, and so um, there You know, there that's the first thing you've said today that has cheered me up. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the, the people of Taiwan do not want to be dominated. And over time, that's only, that, that sentiment has only increased. People identify increasingly uh, as Taiwanese first, uh, Chinese second, um, uh, and the the geography is extremely uh, difficult. Uh, both the 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 shallow um, uh, straits, the, the the very stormy seas of the straits, there aren't many places to land um, an invading force. Uh, it is a compact little fortress of an island. It's got the tallest mountain in East Asia, taller than Mount Fuji on this little on this little island. Um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, rural as well as difficult, uh, dense urban uh, terrain. And so I, I think that to the extent that Taiwan, with our help and Japan's help and the help of other countries around the world, can help the the Chinese decision makers in Beijing, um, understand that this may not be a fast fight the way that they're planning for it to be. They want it to be a fait accompli, finished in a matter of weeks. Can um, I just if, ask, military planners, uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to compare these two regimes, but just as a military question, again, to help a layman get a grasp on it. The German military planners at the beginning of World War I are, are to draw up plans for the invasion of Britain. Presumably the PLA is drawing up plans. We hope they're never ex executed, but they're drawing up. Who has the harder military problem? Is it harder for the Germans to invade Britain or is it harder for mainland China to invade Taiwan as a military matter, which is the harder problem? Well, you know, I mean, it's analogous, right? I mean, it's analogous. I mean, Operation Sea Lion didn't happen because of course, uh, you know, of course the Nazi regime said, hey, this isn't gonna work. And 
And it, you'll, when you have an obstacle, you know, like a narrow straight, like the channel, the, the problem is you, you're, I mean, you might be able to get some forces there, uh, but you might not be able to sustain them, right? You need, right. You need to really uh, achieve a degree of mass that allows you to be able to sustain that force and get the logistics in behind it. It's very complicated. And I think, it, Matt, I don't know what you think, but it's probably more complicated today, right? Because if Taiwan uh, undertakes the reforms uh, under President Tsai Ing-wen uh, to develop some of these asymmetrical capabilities, in particular, uh, long-range surveillance and detection and, and, and radar that can be paired with uh, precision systems, short-of-ship missiles, you know, for example, and sophisticated geared and layered air defense, hey, I mean, really, that's going to make it tough. And that's really what you want, right, is you want to achieve deterrence by denial in Taiwan. You want the PLA... Uh, to conclude that it cannot accomplish its objectives uh, through the use of force. Can I let me quote to you both? Uh, back, I'll come back to you, Matt. After this sure. one, our Hoover Institution colleague Neil Ferguson. Neil wrote this just ten days ago. As a student of history, I see a very dangerous situation. The, the U.S. commitment to Taiwan has grown verbally stronger, even as it has become militarily weaker. Perhaps Taiwan will turn out to be, this is the nightmare, perhaps Taiwan will turn out to be the Amer to the American empire what Suez was to the British empire in 1956, the moment when the imperial lion was exposed as a paper tiger. Losing Taiwan will be seen all over Asia as the end of American predominance. It would cause a run on the dollar. It would be the American Suez, close quote. Matt? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I don't even want to um, um, indulge in a scenario in which the U.S. Uh, fails to come to Taiwan's aid and, and fails in providing sufficient aid to, to prevent Taiwan from being annexed. Impulse, you don't feel any impulse to say, Neil, 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 calm down, calm down. That's a good good concept for a column, but we're not there yet. You don't feel an impulse to say that look, in, of I, course, a I, respectful I, way to Neil. I, I'm one of those that that uh, feels the situation is actually quite urgent. I'm I'm right. I'm not one of those. I, I agree with Neil on that. I, I do agree that it would be a, uh, um, uh, you know, were that outcome to to come about, it it could be quite um, uh, uh, disastrous. Uh, but at the same time, all of our allies in Asia, who else have they got? Right? Uh, there there's not um, uh, there's not another United States. Uh, waiting in the wings, uh, the, the way that the United States was uh, was there to uh, pick up pick up where the United Kingdom left off uh, as as a great ally of the United Kingdom, but um, uh, but you know to, to the to the question about invading, I, I think HR is right that it is analogous. It's analogous in another ways. You know, Operation Sea Lion versus what, whatever uh, operation the PLA is cooking up. Um, uh, it's analogous in another respect. Remember that 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 the Nazis started by targeting from the air military targets uh, right. in in the UK, and when that didn't work, they turned to terror bombing. Right. Uh, and when that didn't work, they, they'd pretty much run run out of cards to play. They 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 did not uh, think, uh, and I think rightly that they were going to be able to pull off the invasion of the British Islands. Um, it, in this case. Some things have not changed uh, in in warfare. It's extremely rare, if not unprecedented, for a country to subjugate another country purely through air power. And China's formidable uh, missile arsenal is is just another form of air power. It's precision 
I would, if I could recommend yes, a book here, Conrad Crane's book, Bombs, Cities, and Civilians, uh, makes this point very clearly. Go ahead, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, that's it exactly. And and so what it what it does is it does not achieve the strategic um, military effect that that air power sets out to try to achieve first, and second, it doesn't achieve the the strategic political effect. Uh, it's designed to subjugate and cow right. people. It usually gets their backs up and makes them want to fight all, all, all the all the more. And and the will to fight, which is which is the main key variable in in uh, in the outcome of of a conflict, uh, including in the Taiwan Strait. Um, uh, the, the approach that China is going to take could end up actually increasing the will to fight, not only among the people of Taiwan, but among the people of the United States, the people of Japan, uh, and, and people from uh, farther flung uh, places as well. And Matt, would you maybe also make a point of, about uh, how what China has done in Hong Kong has also bolstered the will of, of the Taiwanese people? It hasn't had, that had kind of the can opposite I, effect as can, well? Uh, I think so. So that could I just ask, speaking of what China did in Hong Kong, again, I'm a layman and I'm about to take a whack at an administration which the two of you serve. So if I'm missing things, whack me back. But China threatens and blusters in Hong Kong and we use some diplomatic language saying how much we'd object. And then they roll in and crush Hong Kong. Well, excuse me, the first thing they do is round up central democratic activists, including Jimmy Lai, who's appeared three times on this program, and Martin Lee. And we use some diplomatic language. And then they crush the democracy movement, enacting a new law, rounding up the remaining activists, reaching down not from the, not simply to the famous figures, but down to the, the kids, the organizers. People are in prison. It's over for Hong Kong. It's over. And between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, the American response was, oh, what a pity. And I just think back to, I come again, the old Cold War. Henry Kissinger used to say this, and so did Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his, his famous address at Harvard University, that absence countervailing force, the internal dynamics of the Soviet Union were such that it had no choice but to expand. We simply say, what a pity about Hong Kong and the internal dynamics in Beijing are, hey, Xi Jinping, they're not pushing back on Hong Kong. Now Taiwan, now the big event. Is that, did we, have we, yes, we supply military aid to Taiwan, but did we just screw up? Couldn't we have said something more? Couldn't we have done something to register a much more serious objection to what the Chinese just did in Hong Kong? Did we just weaken Taiwan's hand? by failing to perform, failing to do something in Hong Kong? Or have I got that entirely wrong, which I very may well? Well, I ask, I ask Matt, because the administration did do quite a bit, I mean, in response to Hong Kong. But as, you know, as Aristotle said, you know, it is only worth discussing what is in our power, right? So I think what we have to do mainly is learn from what happened in Hong Kong and make sure we maintain our strategic options and we keep our deterrent capability strong in the region. There are those today, Peter, who say, you know, we should. What are all those forces doing overseas, which are actually historically low levels of U.S. forces are deployed abroad these days, uh, and and are making the case uh, for bringing everybody home to the continental United States? Well, hey, China would like nothing more than that, right? Because it is forward-positioned, capable U.S. forces, as Matt mentioned, in the context of alliances and partnerships, 
that turns what China would like to say is denied space automatically into contested space, right? So, so I think it's important for us to recognize that we have to maintain a strong deterrent, which we didn't have, obviously, vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong, uh, but also preserve more options uh, if there is if there is a crisis. But Matt, would, would you want? I think your your best position to discuss, you know, the the reaction. Uh, to, to the yeah. uh, to, to the aggression. I'm, I'm in Hong entirely open to the possibility that I just have it all wrong here. I'm just a layman reading the paper. Well, I I think that um, the the effect we we did uh, it, it didn't get much coverage, but President Trump actually gave a powerful speech in the Rose Garden in May of last year um, when it became clear uh, that that China was going to move forward with this national security law. Uh, he unveiled a, a number of concrete steps designed to impose direct costs on, on the Chinese Communist Party as a result. If, if those had been amplified, uh, not only by our own media, but, but also really by European powers, uh, it would have had a stronger effect. I don't think it would have stopped uh, what, what uh, the, the uh, leadership in Beijing had clearly already uh, set out to do. Um, but it, it, it would have, uh, I think... Um, reverberated more more powerfully in ways that would uh, would hearten uh, others around around the region, including Taiwan. Uh, I, I think the effect was a backfire in terms of China's Taiwan policy. Um, uh, you know, it was after that. that By the uh, way, to, to me, you you reported from Asia. You know it well. In HR, you were on airplanes for thirty years. You've been everywhere in the world talking to leaders. I am just Taiwan. Again, now that we've gotten going on this analogy, Churchill was this singular figure who stepped forward at the very last moment to defy Hitler. Taiwan has one major figure after another insisting on defying the mainland Chinese. The population of Taiwan itself votes for people who are on the independence from China, not perhaps official declarations, but who want to create... I, I mean, not to use old-fashioned terms, but that island is filled with courageous people. I'm just a step. Listen, if I had them buzzing my airspace every two days, I'd get on the phone and say, uh, fellas in Beijing, could we talk this over a little? What you, exactly what do you want? And that is not what the people of Taiwan are doing. Have we got an ally who's just impressive there, unusually impressive as human beings go? Matt? Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, Taiwan is a pretty amazing society. I mean, I remember when I went there as a student, um, uh, to to just for to study Chinese for a year in Taipei after I had spent a year in Beijing and I was just blown away by the difference. Mm. Um, they they had preserved uh, incredible aspects of traditional Chinese culture much better than of course the communists had. You know there was mm. a, there was a vibrant uh, religious life. Um, uh, you know respect for for historical artifacts and and sort of. Uh, um, uh, you know, traditional ta Taiwan culture and traditional Chinese culture, but in this very democratic, outspoken um, uh, uh, political context, which was which was really a uh, a revelation for me. Where where they need to do more uh, is in order to demonstrate the will that I think is there that you're touching on that that the the will to resist. They're tough. Um, yes. Uh, is uh, to show that that will actually translate into operational um, mm -hmm. capability 
in the form of a civil defense corps, reserve corps, special ops forces, others that are willing to fight for every square inch of territory in Taiwan. And um, the, the previous government in Taiwan, uh, of, uh, the KMT government that was in place before um, Tsai Ing-wen uh, you know, was elected in, in 2016, uh, did a lot to dismantle some of the, the elements of compulsory service that um, I, I think are essential to any analogous type of, right. of country, whether it's Israel or Singapore. You, you, you don't you don't say, you know, don't worry about uh, military service. You actually expand military service so that so that uh, your adversaries understand that you that everyone's capable of fighting uh, and, and has uh, has the will to fight. There's more okay. that needs to be done in that respect. All right. So that's for Taiwan. What do we need to do here's here again let me just give you a, let me offer you a few notes from my reading and then just toss it to you so here's what the pentagon has requested something called the pacific deterrence initiative that would focus on forward deployment that is placing military assets over there in asia where we might see them guam micronesia palau marshall islands and so forth eight billion dollars Citizen of the United States reads that and says, wait a minute, we already spend $700 billion a year. Now they're asking for $8 billion as a supplemental to do their job, which is to, <laughs> a Pacific deterrent is something they should have been planning on and budgeting for, for years. What is going on across the river in the Pentagon? HR said complacent. Hey, boy, boy, do, I mean, okay. I, 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 there are moments, I read something like that and I feel sympathetic I, these accounts of President Trump, forgive me, becoming exasperated with the generals, I think to myself, maybe he had, maybe he had a point. Okay, so there's that. And then we read uh, the strategist David Ochmanek, if I'm pronouncing that name correctly, of RAND. Big air bases on land and big aircraft carriers on the water turn out to be big targets, things that rely on sophisticated base infrastructure are going to have a hard time. So the Pentagon says, let's put objects out there and strategists say, well, I don't know. Those are those things like that are easy to hit. And then I come up with, there's a military reporter called Joseph Trevithick. Again, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And he writes for Reuters. This is just a couple of days ago. Reports have already emerged that many American allies and partners in the Pacific, such as Australia, Australia are out. They were with us in Vietnam, Australia and South Korea do not appear to be inclined to offer to host any of these new weapons, close quote. So I look at this and say, what a mess. The Pentagon hasn't been budgeting for, they're waking up now and asking for more money. Well, the generals are very good at doing that much at least. Are they doing the right thing? Do we need to rethink our strategy? Are we already losing our grip on our allies? What do we need to do, HR? Well, I mean, there are a whole series of reforms we have to undertake. And, you know, this isn't the generals. I mean, not to apologize for the military, but this is the way yeah, that we I'm do sorry, budgeting. HR, I owe you a shoe shine. I'm sorry. I don't mean to take a swipe. Oh, at, no, no, no. It's, no, you it's, or your I, colleagues. This is, this is, no, it's a great opportunity to explain this. I mean, you know, the, the way that we do budgeting, we don't do multi-year budgeting in defense, which is crazy, right? It's crazy because without a predictable budget, you can't develop systems in a way with the, with the predictability that you need. Uh, and you can't get rid of legacy systems and replace them with new systems. And so you wind up incurring more costs. You can't innovate effectively within the cycle of technology. So we need to budget differently. We have had this lodestone around of our, our neck of the Budget Control Act and, and, and defense sequestration, which really held us 
how, how does keeping uh, legacy systems longer rather than modernizing and, and, and divesting of, of older systems? And so there is a huge bow wave of deferred military modernization that the Trump budget increases just took a little bit of a dent in. I mean, it really didn't even do much good because, again, of this complacency for, for so long. Uh, the In terms of the forward positioning of forces and where they are, I mean, I think it's important to have a number of basing options available. And the way you deal with you know the long-range missile threat to those kind of fixed sites is you hop around between multiple sites because you also need to be there inside of what your enemy would want to be this exclusionary bubble so that you can turn that into contested space. Now, the weapons that, you're That much, about, at least, I think I grasp. No, and, and we the cannot let them push it, roll back our forward line, right? Yeah, we our, cannot, our, yeah, and, yeah. and Australia and, and South Korea, some of these weapons are going to be more con controversial because they're long-range con conventional missile capabilities. But I think once the threat from, from China becomes... Uh, you know, obvious to, to more uh, to more countries, they're going to want those capabilities there. But it's important to know, you know, you know, war. I mean, and and fighting in this kind of environment, right, against a capable enemy. You know, it's the children's game of rock paper scissors. There is no single capability that is going to be decisive. You need a range of naval and aerospace and cyberspace and land-based capabilities that can be used in combination and that are mobile such that you can gain advantage through surprise, temporal advantages associated with the, the, the pace of events you can oppose on an adversary, impose on an adversary. And it's really how you integrate all of those capabilities. That's our greatest strength uh, as a military, is that we do that better than anybody. Now, we can't be complacent about that either, right? Because the People's Liberation Army and the People's Liberation Army and the People's Liberation Army, Navy and Air Force, they all, they all want to, they're aspiring to that kind of jointness that we have. Um, but, you, you know, you, you, have to, you, you have to work at it continuously. And we have a, a very strong professional military that does that. Uh, but even though you can say $700 billion, it sounds like a vast amount. When you look at that budget, and how much is actually going to procuring systems and paying for you know, the kind of training and forward positioning that you're that you're talking about? It's a relatively small amount of that budget, sadly. All right, Matt. This is you in the Wall Street Journal, just last month. Matt Pottinger in the Wall Street Journal quote: "A favorite analogy in Beijing and Washington is that our countries are running a marathon, and only one contestant will win." It's closer to the truth that we're in a 400-meter dash that we have to win to qualify for the marathon, close quote. What does the Biden administration need to do to win that 400-meter dash? Yeah. Well, for starters, we have to recognize that the, the center of gravity for the Chinese Communist Party, for their really for their strategy, is uh, continued economic growth right? All of the problems we're facing with, with their, their growing military and those capabilities, their, their debt diplomacy around the world, more ships patrolling the South China Sea, um, really, you name it, it, it is all of that derives from their economic strength. We're in a very uh, um, perverse situation right now, where the United States is actually funding China's expansion of its empire. Uh, we have $1.1 trillion in equity investments in China uh, and growing. 
$100 billion of, of Chinese debt that, that Americans have bought. A lot of that is, has been made possible through so-called passive investment, where Wall Street creates these new products using indices that lead to American pensioners really to unwittingly have hundreds of billions of dollars of their savings funded into China's military and industrial complex. That has to stop. It has to stop. Uh, and if it does, you'll find that we're no longer the scaffolding under this creaking system in Beijing, a, a, a centrally planned economic system that's increasingly showing uh, worse inefficiencies and, and less uh, productive uh, value. We're the scaffolding under that. We're the crutch right now because we're, we're putting so much of our money uh, into investing in, into Chinese monopolies. Can I hold on, if I may? I'm thinking of a major investment firm here in Silicon Valley. A couple of friends of mine work there. And for, I don't know about last year, but I had lunch, it doesn't matter, for several years now, but it was two years ago, 90% of their investments, $9 out of every 10 that they raised, and these people oversee billions, was invested in China. You're saying that has to stop? Yeah, well, you're de you're describing the flip side of of us funding Chinese empire. There's the passive money that goes in to to compensate for the the, the the incredible inefficient allocation of capital by Chinese state institutions. Then you have American smart money, which I think is what you're describing. Which is well, these guys are very smart. I would I would smart. call this smart money. Yes. Well, it's it's a little bit of money that goes a very long way because Silicon Valley is able to do what no European. Uh, uh, really can do as well. No, no, certainly no Chinese investor can do uh, as well as our Silicon Valley venture capital funds and and strategic funds, which is they know how to how to how to um, uh, cultivate, um, incubate, and cultivate uh, high tech firms that that um, uh, will, will be successful. Uh, and and we're I, I think that money needs. Uh, to start going to other places as well, and and I just point out that you know, from yep. U.S. venture capital firms invested more in Chinese artificial intelligence technology related companies than they did in U.S. artificial intelligence technology related companies. Thank you, HR, for taking the heat off me. I said that, and then I thought, "Whoa, I'm not going to get that lunch again." Uh, <laughs> I'm going you know, to say no. It's HR put that idea in my head, but it's true. Look. It's look true. And this is not because th these Chinese entrepreneurs who are who are on the receiving end of that money are not brilliant people or or, or good people. They right. are. The problem is they are increasingly obligated through through no uh, choice of their own to serve the interests of the ruling Communist Party, which is a totalitarian surveillance state that makes no distinction increasingly between private or public or uh, what's military and what's civilian. It all must serve the party's objective of military civil fusion. Okay, two last questions here. You guys have been very generous with your time. Here's one. It's a question in the, it's a scenario. You're back on the National Security Council staff. You're back in the White House. Here's a report that comes in from Taiwan. And I'm not making this up. I'm about to read to you a report from Reuters, one of Matt Pottinger's old employers, that as we tape this is just a few days old. Quote, 
China sent more fighter jets into Taiwan's air defense zone on Wednesday in a stepped-up show of force around the island Beijing claims as its own, and Taiwan's foreign minister said it would fight to the end if China attacks. Three more paragraphs. The democratic self-governed island has complained of repeated military activities by Beijing in recent months, with China's air force making almost daily forays into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. On Monday, China said an aircraft carrier group was exercising close to the island. Last couple of paragraphs, Taiwan's defense ministry said 15 Chinese aircraft, including 12 fighters, entered its air defense identification zone with an anti-submarine aircraft flying to the south through the Bashi Channel between Taiwan and the Philippines. Taiwan's Air Force sent up aircraft to intercept and warn the Chinese away, the ministry added, close quote. And a report like that comes to you at the National Security Council staff and you say, oh, that sounds routine. We've reached the point at which this is routine. Or you say, oh, the commander in chief needs to hear about this within the hour. HR? Yeah, this is the this is the greatest flashpoint in connection with uh, with China, and and we we should remember, you know, we've clashed with uh, the People's Liberation Army in the in the past. The Hainan Island incident is one right. is one incident, and one of the things that concerns me, I'd love to hear what Matt thinks about this, is is you know, what if the People's Liberation Army is believing their own propaganda? What if you know People's Liberation Army commanders think, hey, this is what this is what Chairman Xi wants me to do? and then precipitates a, a conflict that can escalate quite quickly. I think we are at a point of maximum danger, uh, and that danger will actually, you know, at this, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're on our way up. Uh, and, and, uh, and I think the, the most critical period of time will be after the Beijing Olympics and after the Chinese Communist Party Congress in 2022. And I think you're seeing a range of activity that is meant to desensitize us to this kind of military intimidation, but what you don't see is, a, and Matt can maybe talk about this, is a range of other activities that are aimed at subverting Taiwan's will from an economic and informational perspective, co-optation of elites and so forth. So this is a very sophisticated and deliberate campaign. But even though the, the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party may not want to go to war right now, uh, they may be uh, at risk at this moment of precipitating an incident that could lead to war. Well, that as a layman, Matt, as a layman, I looked at that. Whoa, 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 this last sentence here, Taiwan's Air Force sent up aircraft to intercept and warn the Chinese away. And I thought, that sounds dangerous. Well, the, kid, the, drone, some... the drones in the last few days, too. And now yeah. Taiwan saying they're going to shoot down the drones if they come back to, to these islands. So, you know, it's so one, one mistake, some 24-year-old pilot up there misunderstands an order or makes a mistake or frankly panics. And okay, so this is routine. We have to learn to live with this or or we have to somehow or other find a way to back this down. I, I, what You're back in the White House. What do you tell the chief executive, Matt? Yeah, so uh, the you put it in the context as we often did. And President Trump spent a lot of time on Taiwan. Uh, you put it in the context of, of a campaign that is intensifying, that is creating a, a higher uh, threat of danger and uh, of miscalculation. Right. I, in a way, it's, it's incredible that you haven't had more incidences like what we had uh, 20 years ago with our EP3 aircraft that, that got rammed by a hot dog uh, PLA 
uh, Air Force pilot. Uh, I mean, when you look at the number of sorties that China is sending out, um, into or even go the, back, you go back twenty years before that to to, to the KAL 007 when the Soviets shot down a Korean yeah. passenger liner, clearly by mistake, clearly the chain of command broke down, but it happened. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're right. And and part of that is um, is what HR talked about, which is believing their own propaganda. Um, right. uh, it, it, it's an overconfidence uh, in their operations and their capabilities and in their pilots and in, you know, that, that uh, uh, a belief that human error is, has somehow been squeezed out of the equation, which uh, w- when you, you know, which we all know, okay. those of us who have so, been under I'm, arms. I'm playing President the human Trump. Factor, I, I'm playing President Trump right now. Uh, don't judge my performance. Uh, he's inimitable. But I'm playing President Trump and I look at HR and I look at Matt and say, okay, guys, what are you telling me I should do? Yeah, I, and I, I would I would uh, dramatically pick up the pace, and, and it did pick up over the course of uh, the administration. Of first of all, what I'll call the substantive engagement with Taiwan, which is helping them with their capabilities, uh, uh, helping sell more relevant uh, armaments uh, to them, stockpiling those armaments. Uh, so that they're they're already on hand uh, in the in the event that there is a crisis. So Beijing doesn't ha- has to take into account the fact that Taiwan doesn't need to be resupplied instantaneously uh, in order to uh, threaten uh, those forces. Uh, I would also get uh, the rest of the world talking about uh, the the fact that Beijing's actions are destabilizing uh, to our collective security. And um, so imposing a symbolic cost, a diplomatic cost, while also providing uh, concrete capability. I'm sorry, one more. I keep saying last question, last question. This one isn't the last question. I have a question I do want to ask, but this is the next to last, I promise. The psychological point strikes me as probably very important. It is very easy in a casual way I believe, for a senator or a member of Congress or a layman to say, look, we made these commitments to Taiwan a long time ago. China's 1.3 billion people, and Taiwan is just across a little strait of water. I don't know how what form it'll take. I hope it happens peacefully, but this is inevitable. That's that could be very easy just to sort of seep into the air like ether. On the other hand, Hitler never invaded Britain because it turns out to be hard to do. And still more new parallels coming to mind. And what I'm asking fundamentally is whether this is a fair analogy or a useful analogy or whether yet again, I'm wrong. Israel has survived and not only survived, Israel has thrived. So it is not inevitable. Well, that a small democracy surrounded by hostility needs yeah. to to make its accommodations. It can we can we and they can pull this off. Is that true? Is that fair? I, I think it's fair. I mean, how, you know, so many other analogies are leaping to mind now. How about West Berlin? Uh, you know, for example. Yes. You know, so okay. so you know, I I think you know, I think uh, w- one of the reasons why why the Chinese Communist Party is obsessed with Taiwan is that that, that Taiwan you know, gives the lie to this idea that. That uh, that the, the Chinese people are culturally predisposed toward not wanting a say in how they're governed, right? And so, uh, this is why you know, one of the main reasons why Taiwan, you know, I think, deserves our support 
I would just say that that we had a great deal of, of obviously bipartisan uh, consensus about our, our support for for NATO and 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 by connection, you know, uh, West Germany and and West Berlin. And I think you see that same degree of bipartisan support right now. I think thanks in large measure to Matt Pottinger and the way he cultivated that bipartisan support. Um, and what we've seen is the Biden administration really continue uh, the po- the policy of the Trump administration vis-a-vis Taiwan and more broadly the China policy. So, Matt, what what are your thoughts on 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 this? And you know, how do you you know, there's how do nothing you inevitable. Chi- there is nothing inevitable about Taiwan's buckling under to China. They don't have to. It's, it's not inevitable. And right. it's absolutely not inevitable. And the, the con that is at the heart of every Leninist movement is that um, uh, the future is ours. So make right. your adjustments now. Don't make it hard on yourselves. <laughs> you know, and this is all part of We can do this that. the hard way or we can do this the easy way. This is right. all part of, part of that. And, and, and in fact, we, we do ourselves a favor when we remind ourselves uh, that, that actually it is China that is defying uh, history right now and is defying gravity uh, with with uh, the the uh, you know re- residual success of of that period when they came from having 50 million of their own people uh, uh, starve to death or get killed under purges that was in my lifetime that was going on uh, young as and, you are yeah exactly you know early 70s so you know the cultural revolution was still going strong and um uh, and, and so really, they were starting from such a low starting point that, uh, that of, of course, to the extent that the party was able to get out of the way of its own people for, for a spell, for a few decades, China was going to succeed. The Chinese people are, 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 are going to succeed when, they're, when they have um, uh, free will. That's and, another important uh, psychological point. It must be understood that the Chinese Communist Party did not lift half a billion people out of poverty. It got out of the way while the Chinese people themselves lifted themselves out totally of poverty. Right. Is that correct? Could, okay. couldn't, say it, couldn't say it any better than that. And the so, Chinese people deserve full, full credit for it, but with the assistance of, of a lot of American you know, financiers and businessmen and entrepreneurs yes. and so forth. All right, fellas, last, this really is the last question, HR and Matt. Two quotations. They're a little on the longish side, but I think I think they both pay off. Here's the first quotation. This is the diplomat George Kennan at the beginning of the last Cold War. Quote, it's very seldom quoted. It's, I'm bracing myself because it's moving in a way. Surely there was never a fairer test of national quality than this. The thoughtful observer will experience a certain gratitude to Providence, which by providing the American people with this implacable challenge, has made their entire security as a nation dependent on their pulling themselves together and accepting the responsibilities of moral and political leadership that history plainly intended them to bear." Close quote. Here's the second quotation, the last issue of The Economist magazine. Quote, China is increasingly sure that America is in a long-term, irreversible decline. China is now applying calculated doses of pain to shock Westerners into realizing that the old American-led order is ending. Close quote. Convince our listeners, in just a few sentences, convince our listeners that the old American-led order is not ending. HR? 
Hey, our greatest competitive advantage is our democracy gives us the ability to get better, to reform short of revolution, right? Because the people have a say. We have a say in how we're governed. I wish we would celebrate that more. I wish we would celebrate freedom of speech, freedom of expression, rule of law, all of these freedoms that are absent in China. So I would like to see us end what I think is our, our most recent infatuation with self-flagellation and, 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 uh, and restore pride in our nation. You know, Richard Rorty, you know, who was, you know, uh, you know who, who was kind of a, you know, a leftist philosopher said that, you know, national pride is to nations what self-respect is to individuals, a necessary element for self-improvement. And so I, I think that all of us, despite the traumas we've been through, you know, in the past year, we ought to do our part to, to regain our confidence in who we are as a people and in our democratic principles and, and institutions. Matt? Yeah, I, I couldn't say it any better than that. And we're well into our third century as, as a self-governing republic. We're the oldest republic. We're the oldest democracy, the longest running democracy. Uh, China is, um, I, I remember reading uh, that, that the average dynasty throughout Chinese history, there have been some long ones, but the average is, is 70 years. Uh, the People's Republic of China turned 70 just a little over a year ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, communist parties uh, uh, have not fared well uh, with good reason. And it has to do with the fact that they, uh, you know, that people do crave free will. Uh, they were endowed with free will, and, and they succeed when they exercise it in, in the right ways, in responsible ways. Uh, China is moving in the exact polar opposite direction from that right now. I mean, I lived in China in the 90s, in the early 2000s. Uh, I mean, it, it was a free country uh, then compared to what it is right now. And it, 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 um, uh, it does not bode well. Uh, for, uh, for, for the long-term success of, of that system. We just have to now manage um, uh, uh, the, the uh, overweening ambition, the insecurity, uh, and, and dangerous impulses of, of a system that deep down in its heart uh, has grave self-doubt. H.R. McMaster and Matthew Pottinger, both of the Hoover Institution, thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.